From Fraser to Myersdale, Pittston to Lock Haven, this is Lincoln Radio Journal. On this edition, Election Day is rapidly approaching and the candidates are crisscrossing the state, speaking at key events and staking out positions on what they believe to be winning issues. David Taylor from the Pennsylvania Manufacturers Association is joined by Rebecca Euler from the Pennsylvania Motor Truck Association and Stephen Bloom of the Commonwealth Foundation for a Capital Watch roundtable discussion. And crime is spiking in the city of Philadelphia. State House members have begun impeachment proceedings against District Attorney Larry Krasner. I'll have a town hall commentary. I'm Loman Henry, and welcome to Lincoln Radio Journal. We'll get to our Capital Watch crew in just a couple of minutes, but first, news headlines from patownhall.com. Pennsylvania's state system of higher education, which includes 10 universities, has seen a sharp decline in student enrollment since 2009. But this year, freshman enrollment grew by 7%. The increase can be partially attributed to students who delayed entering college during the COVID-19 pandemic. They're now beginning their higher education careers. Despite the uptick in freshman enrollment, overall enrollment system-wide is down an average of 5% this year. Declining student populations has added financial pressure to the already struggling university system. The state's independent fiscal office has released a report that shows the earnings phase-out of federal SNAP benefits during the pandemic has created a benefits cliff that is discouraging individuals from re-entering the workforce and is prolonging the labor supply shortage. Prior to the pandemic, benefits were reduced by $30 for every $100 in additional income. That phase-out was suspended during the pandemic and replaced with a benefit threshold, at which time all benefits cease. That all-or-nothing scenario discourages folks from getting jobs that take them over the benefit threshold, which results in an immediate loss of all benefits. This, while August data shows that the Pennsylvania labor force contracted by 110,000 individuals. Read about all things Pennsylvania at patownhall.com. There is a lack of candidate debates this year, but the nominees for governor and U.S. senator are appearing at various forums and events, giving us some insight into their positions on key issues facing our state and nation. Here with the Capital Watch discussion are David Taylor from the Pennsylvania Manufacturers Association, Rebecca Euler from the Pennsylvania Motor Truck Association, and Stephen Bloom of the Commonwealth Foundation. David? And welcome once again to Capital Watch, where we keep an eye on what's happening under the Capitol Dome in Harrisburg for you. I'm your host, David Taylor, President and CEO of the Pennsylvania Manufacturers Association. With me in the studio, your Capital Watch All-Stars, Rebecca Euler, President and CEO of the Pennsylvania Motor Truck Association. Rebecca, thanks for being here. Great to be back again, David. Thank you. And my main man, Steve Bloom, Vice President of the Commonwealth Foundation. Steve, thanks so much for being here. Thank you, David. Pleasure to be here. Well, you know, here we are now. Uh, um, with the November election uh, not too far away, 
and you've got your statewide candidates, um, you know, batting around the issues and taking swings at one another. And so just thought we would try to, you know, cover the landscape and and, uh, you know, give some kind of context to the different issues that are being that are being bandied about. So, Rebecca, what's your what's your take on the state of play? Well, what's interesting to me is how much sort of agreement we hear on the issues. In some cases, I think a lot of the candidates agree that we're in a good place um, with Pennsylvania energy development. And um, the other thing that we're hearing a lot about is making Pennsylvania uh, friendlier for businesses and reducing the corporate net income tax and making the regulatory and uh, tax environment friendlier for business. And a lot of the candidates are talking about that on both sides of the aisle. So yeah. I thought that's interesting. To yeah, hear. I guess it's, I mean, Steve, I suppose this is the traditional sort of move to the middle in the closing days of a campaign. But um, it, I mean, it's especially heartening to hear from, um, you know, for example, from Attorney General Shapiro, the Democrat nominee for governor, um, not only support for the reduction in the corporate income tax that's in place, but actually accelerating it. And, and really, that speaks to the merits of the underlying issue. We in Pennsylvania do not exist in a vacuum. When we go out there and try to recruit businesses to locate in Pennsylvania and build infrastructure and hire our, our sons and daughters and grandkids, there's a competition taking place yes, sir. between us and 49 other states mm-hmm. and all the other countries in the world. Mm-hmm. And so regardless of the political reasons for this, I think what you're seeing is parties are recognizing, both parties in some cases um, – at least saying they recognize mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the importance of keeping Pennsylvania competitive. And so cutting the corporate net income tax rate, for example, and making sure that the cuts that were enacted in this in this past legislative session do go into effect and aren't delayed and even maybe accelerated, yeah. that's important. It speaks not so much to the candidates, but to the reality that Pennsylvania is in a fierce day-to-day competition yeah. with, with the rest of the world and the other states to to attract and maintain our jobs here. And and it's and this is something the listeners may have heard me, you know, talk about before. We're discussing tax rates, not tax collections, tax rates. And that we're in a situation Pennsylvania having one of the highest corporate net income tax uh, rates in America at 9.99% in the most recent budget that the uh the CNI starting January 1 of of next year is going to fall to 8.99%, which is not great, but it's better. Um, but moreover, that there's a glide path to get the CNI with with half a percent a year over the next nine years to get it down to 4.99%, which would be a competitive, you know, the lower part of the middle of the pack. And, um, and so we were able to enact that. Again, it's the it's not going to happen guaranteed. That's something that, you know, that the business community is going to have to fight for in every single budget between now and then. But it's just interesting to see the political shift that this is – apparently it's an issue that um, that it, at least the Democrats are not prepared to, to fight on, at least not their standard bearer. And it, again, it demonstrates the importance of – why we at the Commonwealth Foundation and why you at the Pennsylvania Manufacturers Association and why Rebecca Trucking Association, we get out and speak all the time about the importance of these issues. And so do other organizations that are allied with us on the importance of having a strong economy in Pennsylvania. Right. We're winning that battle. It's a battle for hearts and minds. And the fact that the Democratic candidate for governor is talking about, in very positive terms, these corporate net income tax cuts and the need to accelerate those cuts – that shows that we're winning the battle in terms of engaging 
the importance of the idea, that the idea right. is transcending the politics. And the hope is also with a lower rate, we encourage growth and investment that will result in more economic activity, which will eventually increase collections. We want higher collections. We want, we want a growing economy. We want um, you know, the, the, the natural growth of the economy to be spinning off the revenue to sustain core functions of government, both and at the state level and the local government. A scenario like that is where everybody wins. Correct. It helps every Pennsylvanian. And it's like Steve said, we are in a competition with other states and other countries around the world. And I think maybe we are at the point where there's finally a shared recognition that that's the case because uh, we have seen that impact in other states. We know that other states where um, tax rates are lower, regulations are less, that they have done much better over the past few years. They recovered from the pandemic quicker. Yes, They're actually gaining population, whereas we're losing population. We lose a um, congressional seat every time we have redistricting. Um, so maybe there's some recognition that there's something to those policies, and we really do need to come together and and make some changes to to uh, change the environment here because Pennsylvania is a, an, a very fortunate, blessed state to have the resources and the people that we have here. So we just need to change some policies to change things around. Well, the the other uh, issue where it seems as though there's been some you know some shifting of the ground um, is on education reform and scholarships and charter schools and school choice that Attorney General Shapiro, again, has uh, given support to uh, the idea of, you know, of a broader menu of choices for families to be able to find the right educational experience for their kids. And, and again, an interesting development and a demonstration that the public mindset is changing. If you go back on the, and look at the history of the school choice movement in Pennsylvania, in the, in the 1990s and early 2000s, it was actually a bipartisan movement. Right. There were numerous, especially urban Democrats, who supported the idea that especially families in the city who, who were being underserved by the traditional brick-and-mortar public schools ought to have some sort of way that they can access a quality education if they aren't, their needs right. aren't being met right. in those public schools. And it was, it was a bipartisan issue. It, it was uh, – the, the programs were established in the late 90s and early 2000s with that bipartisan support. And then gradually over the years, especially due to the influence of the public sector teachers unions, the Pennsylvania State Education Association and and the American Federation of Teachers in the urban areas, those those unions, those public sector unions began to push back against educational choice. They were making it toxic for Democrats to be in favor of school choice, even though they they might have been in the past. And their and constituents so, might approve of it. Exactly. And so Democrats for the last 10 or so years, maybe 15 years, have been drifting away from the school choice, uh, from being proponents of school choice, because I think primarily because they were being intimidated by these large public sector unions Which with are politically millions very and millions yes. of dollars to invest in political races. Now you're starting to see cracks in that. And once again, Democrats are getting on board with the school choice movement because they have to, because their constituents are demanding it. I'm your host, David Taylor from Pennsylvania Manufacturers. With me, Steve Bloom from Commonwealth Foundation and Rebecca Euler from the Pennsylvania Motor Truck Association. One of the big forums, the public events that that happened, I guess not too long ago, um, was the the Pennsylvania Chamber Dinner, the Pennsylvania Chamber of Business and Industry with their big annual dinner in Hershey, um, and that it's just so strange that this has been the common ground where where all of the statewide candidates the major party nominees for the for the biggest statewide offices would appear together and have a joint forum or or a debate 
This time around, you had um, Dr. Oz, who's running as the Republican nominee for U.S. Senate. He appeared in person, um, but Lieutenant Governor Fetterman did not. And conversely, in the governor's race that the Republican nominee, uh, State Senator Doug Mastriano, did not participate, um, but that the Democrat Attorney General Josh Shapiro did. Um, What was your takeaway from that, Steve? Well, first of all, it's interesting because the – each candidate lacked a direct opponent in these in on the stage mm-hmm. uh, speaking with the crowd and this was televised as well so speaking to all those at home who may be watching it um, because each of them lacked an opponent they were able to venture into territory that they probably wouldn't be able to venture into if there was an opponent there to hold them accountable right to give pushback to give pushback and so you you saw um, the the democratic gubernatorial candidate staking out a lot of very centrist positions but you saw the Republican senatorial candidate also staking out a number of centrist positions. And, and I don't know that that would have happened had there been the traditional one-on-one debate between the candidates in, in, in both races. And so you, 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 the, the absence of that direct challenge also keeps the voters from really understanding where some of these candidates – where they feel deeply in their hearts when they get pushed on these issues. Right. Uh, where they would be, you know, what if what if um, either of these candidates had been and been accused by their opponent of lying or exaggerating? How would they have responded? Mm-hmm. Uh, what if what if um, there were questions asked that that one candidate really seemed to be able to answer better than the other? We would have learned a lot more about the candidates, and and we were kind of deprived of that. Yeah, and and it it gave room for both candidates to seem like they were appealing not only to their base, but to the undecided middle. Mm-hmm. And so. Um, you know, for better or worse, that's that's the situation we had. We had candidates without a direct opponent on the stage, and and they were essentially doing a town hall rather than a, a debate. Yeah. Well, Rebecca, what was your impression? Yeah, I agree with that. There were a lot of centrist positions, um, uh, you know, at, at the event, that's for sure. But um, one thing that I noticed, which I thought was kind of interesting, which was sort of a contrast, and I, I know it's difficult to contrast two candidates that are running for different offices, but... Um, Oz talked about how he's been out speaking with, you know, who would be his constituents, the folks in Pennsylvania, and how one of his major um, observations was how optimistic he was, they were, and how it made him feel optimistic about the country. And one of those, uh, the things that he observed about that is that they were optimistic and they would like for government just to get out of their way so they can succeed. I think that he put it something like that. And I, I thought that was very interesting because um, when Josh Shapiro talked about one of the things that we talk about a lot here is regulatory reform. And he did stake out a centrist position, like Steve said. He said, you know, he wants to you know, reform state government so that it works better for the for the, for businesses and can respond better to, to businesses as they go about getting permits or uh, getting through complying with the regulations that are required for um, business development, and he wants to help small businesses. But I just thought it was an interesting contrast with what Oz had said, because he specifically said that the government wants to help the businesses succeed. They want to proactively help businesses grow. And I thought that was interesting, because it sort of contrasts with what Oz was just saying, that they they want government to be out of their way. Help Uh, me more by helping me less. Right. And I just thought that was an interesting contrast because it said a lot about how Josh Shapiro views the role of government in our lives. Um, The government is here to help those businesses succeed. Those businesses need the government 
in order to succeed mm-hmm. was sort of mm-hmm. the impression that I got from that. And to me, it just said a lot about the way he views the role of government. Um, and I don't know if anybody else noticed that, but um, it was one of the things that really stood out to me. It's a really good observation. It, it reminds me, of course, of uh, one of the most influential United States presidents and, and his formulation that what are the scariest words in the English language? I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Yes. Right. I'm from the government yes. and I'm here to yes. help. Yes, that was our 40th president who also said that the government's view of the economy was that if it moves, tax it, if it keeps moving, regulate it, and if it stops moving, subsidize it. And so Oz is espousing basically a Reagan-esque position yes. where, on the other hand, um, Attorney General Shapiro is, is really more staking out uh, Barack Obama-style position where, where the government is proactively involved in, in – assisting businesses, quote unquote. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. I, I was, you know, I was at that event also. And the one, the one position that, um, that General Shapiro took that, that, uh, I, I'm, I'm convinced is a really, really bad idea, um, is that he was looking to increase what is called the alternative portfolio standard. And what that means is that Pennsylvania has a competitive market for electricity. And that this is, again, competition based on price and that this has helped to improve Pennsylvania's competitive position by lowering prices, expanding um, ex- expanding output, um, that currently there's a carve out, the part that's not under market competition and that this is for the favored sort of uh, – uh, the, the the different energy sources that politicians like, whether it's going to be wind or solar or what have you, and that's up to I believe eighteen percent of our energy economy. So we got eighty two percent left, which is still a mostly functional market. Well, Attorney General Shapiro said that he wants to move that 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 carve out to thirty percent. And that strikes me as just being a really bad idea, especially at a time when, of course, energy prices are going up. This is part of the whole inflationary dynamic that we're caught up in and that, you know, again, if there are great things happening with the energy providers, it'll just manifest. You know, it's like it's like prove yourself in the marketplace, win people over, earn uh, you know, earn those customers rather than having government mandate and or subsidize uh, uh, energy. They should not muck about in the energy market. That competition is one of the things that Pennsylvania is actually doing right. It's frightening because changing this portfolio standards will, in fact, obviously drive the price up for consumers, mm-hmm. which yes. is one problem. But it also impacts the reliability of Correct. the entire power grid. So if you're if you're stuck now by by government mandate relying on wind energy or some other alternative style energy um, by law you you are you are creating the exact conditions under which there's going to be a lack of energy when we need it there's Correct. going to be brownouts blackouts whatever it may be uh, lack of the right kind of energy available for manufacturing processes to take place that consume a great deal of energy all sorts of unnecessary problems will arise when the government muscles its way into this energy market and starts to demand that you use less economically viable technologies and less technically viable technologies. Correct. And it gets back to Rebecca's point of, uh, you know, help me more by helping me less. Right. At the worst possible time, like you said, David, too, I mean, energy prices are just going through the roof. It's only going to get worse this winter. So it's the worst possible time to to be talking about things like that. You know, I, I... I probably said this along the way, but the, you know, I had really hoped, I guess, hope again over experience that, you know, in the course of this 
campaign. Again, we're electing a governor. There should be a governing vision. We're electing a U.S. senator. There should be uh, a debate about the great issues that our nation faces today. And, um, you know, unfortunately, we've had candidates that have refused to participate. Um, and so we haven't had that, you know, steel sharpening steel kind of dynamic in debates, Steve, that you were describing. And we've also had um, – you know, we've wasted an awful lot of time on frivolous things, on, you know, on memes and name calling and and stuff like that. And uh, so, you know, again, the issues that we're talking about here, these are just sort of broad outlines. I really wish that we had had, um, you know, more debates, more conversation uh, uh, more detail, much more detail about the, you know, the philosophies, the governing visions and the specific, um, you know, proposals of of the different candidates. But I, I, I don't know. Is that just the world we live in now? Certainly there's there's an element of the, you know, the professional class in political consulting that if they have a candidate who's in the lead, they're typically going to advise that candidate, don't debate anybody, don't enter any debates because you're only at risk of losing your advantage. Right. Uh, that's a very selfish attitude because the public, as we've talked about on this show before, the public truly has a right to be able to fully evaluate the candidates that are placing themselves before the public for to be elected to these high offices that do have an impact on our lives. So we're losing something when practical considerations or strategic considerations say, don't get out in front of the people because you might say something stupid. Well, and, and again, to the listeners, this is our admonition. It's up to you to be involved, to live life with your brain turned on, to do the research, and especially to demand answers from these candidates who are uh, asking for your vote. So um, with that, uh, we're out of time. Uh, let's loop around here. Steve, where can people go to learn more about you and your organization and the things that you do? They can visit the Commonwealth Foundation at commonwealthfoundation.org on the internet. Outstanding. Thank you. Rebecca, where can people find you? They can find the Pennsylvania Motor Truck Association at pmta.org. Wonderful. And as always, you can find me online at pamanufacturers.org and on the Pennsylvania Cable Network on Sunday mornings at 830 with PMA Perspective. So from Steve and Rebecca and me, thanks very much for listening, and we'll catch you next time on Capital Watch. And now a town hall commentary from Loman Henry. Thank you, David. Emblematic of the lawlessness that has engulfed the city of Philadelphia was the scene in late September at a Roosevelt Avenue Wawa, where what media reports described as a massive group of teenagers descended upon the store, running wild and looting while employees stood by, helpless to stop the mob. It was by no means the most heinous crime committed this year in the city of brotherly love, But the incident demonstrated the degree to which law and order has been set back on its heels by a combination of woke policies that have handcuffed law enforcement while criminals run free from prosecution. Crime statistics are alarming. Nearly 1,000 murders have been committed in the city of Philadelphia over the past 20 months. At that pace, in little more than two years, a population equivalent to that of Braddock will have been slaughtered. Braddock, of course, is home to Pennsylvania's Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman, whose policy goal is to substantially empty out the state's prisons. But Philadelphia has a more local problem, District Attorney Larry Krasner. Krasner is one of a number of big city DAs backed by left-wing financier George Soros, whose lenient prosecutorial policies have unleashed crime waves in cities across the nation. 
As crime rises and citizens fear for their personal safety, those district attorneys are finally getting pushback. For example, in San Francisco, residents overwhelmingly voted to recall District Attorney Chessie Bowden, who, among other progressive policies, fought to end cash bail and stop the prosecution of minors as adults. Krasner's key role enabling the crime crisis in Philadelphia has caught the attention of state lawmakers. State Representatives Josh Kale, Torin Ecker, and Tim O'Neill have begun impeachment proceedings against Krasner. In doing so, Kale stated, quote, We are starting this process now because the unchecked violent crime in Philadelphia has reached a breaking point due to the willful refusal by District Attorney Krasner to enforce existing laws, end quote. Subsequently, the House established a select committee on restoring law and order, which has been vested with subpoena power to investigate the causes of the crime surge and Krasner's role in creating an environment which has allowed it to flourish. Krasner has been stonewalling the committee, refusing to comply with subpoenas, resulting in a bipartisan vote by the full House holding him in contempt. Despite Krasner's flaunting of the committee's jurisdiction, it has begun holding hearings, and the picture being painted is grim. The Center Square reported, quote, The committee heard video testimony from families of murder victims who criticized both the district attorney's office and the Philadelphia Police Department for incompetence and a perceived lack of care. The picture that emerged was one of police officers who failed to do the basic work expected of them and a district attorney's office that did little to bring charges against suspects or reach out to the families of murder victims, end quote. Since the beginning of the year, there have been nearly 1,000 people injured or killed by gun violence in Philadelphia. The progressive answer to this problem is to promote laws restricting the rights of law-abiding gun owners. But the real problem is a lack of enforcement of existing laws. In a second day of hearings, the committee learned that Krasner has withdrawn from participation in the statewide Pennsylvania District Attorneys Association. The association provides training, legal updates, and other resources for prosecutors statewide. Commenting on Krasner's failure to aggressively prosecute existing gun laws, Chairman John Lawrence said, quote, If you fire dozens of seasoned ADAs, assistant district attorneys, and replace them with new folks, perhaps right out of law school, and then fail to provide them with the training that's recognized as the gold standard across the entire Commonwealth, you run the real risk of rookies making basic procedural errors. By error of omission or sin of commission, Philadelphia's conviction rate for violations under the Universal Firearms Act stood at 77% compared to a statewide average of 83%. Worse, the rate of failure to even bring a case rose from 7% of arrests to 21% of arrests in Philadelphia. The process for impeaching a district attorney is long and difficult, but for residents of the state's largest city, waiting until the next election in 2025 would mean a continued escalation of the carjackings, lootings, gun violence, and murders that have plagued the city. That is unacceptable. Public safety is the first and most important function of government. It is time that folks can live, work, and visit our state's largest city and do so without fear of becoming the next crime victim.
With a town hall commentary, I'm Loman Henry. If you miss hearing Lincoln Radio Journal on your favorite radio station, audio of our complete program is available on our websites, lincolnradiojournal.com and lincolninstitute.org. For 27 years, Lincoln Radio Journal has been heard on public affairs-minded radio stations throughout the Commonwealth, including WMCE-FM in Erie, WPXZ-FM and WKQL-FM in Punxsutawney, along with WKFB-AM in Jeanette, Pennsylvania. The Lincoln Radio Journal is produced weekly by the Lincoln Institute of Public Opinion Research, Incorporated. The Lincoln Institute is completely funded through the generosity of individuals, corporations, and philanthropic foundations, including the Allegheny Foundation of Pittsburgh, the Houston Foundation of Coatesville, and the Pennsylvania Manufacturers Association, all of whom have helped to underwrite the costs of this program. Lincoln Radio Journal is a trademark of the Lincoln Institute of Public Opinion Research, Incorporated. Comments and opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Lincoln Institute or of this radio station. From the Lincoln Broadcast Center in Harrisburg, I'm Loman Henry. Thank you for listening to Pennsylvania's most widely broadcast public affairs radio program, Lincoln Radio Journal. Plug into the pulse of Pennsylvania.